Okay, let's take our Bibles out. Begin our reading in James chapter 5 and verse 1. It says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. Will Rogers said, Too many people spend money they earn to buy things they don't want to impress people they don't like. Jonathan Swift said, A wise person should have money in their head, but not in their heart. Epictetus said, Wealth consists not in having great possessions, but in having few wants. And a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore by Yogi Berra. And... Uh, <laughs> Well, as we come to this point in the book of James, that's really kind of what the focus on is it's, it's dealing with money. You know, money is actually dealt with a lot in the Bible and a lot in the New Testament. And I think it's because money tells a lot about us. How we spend our money, how we earn our money, what we do with money can tell a lot about us. It's something that every person has to deal with. Nobody can get away without dealing with money. You need it to be able to live. And you can accomplish a lot of good things with it, for sure. But at the same time, there's a lot of dangers and hazards within it as well. Forbes said that he earned his money the old-fashioned way. He had a wealthy relative that he was very nice to just before he died. (laughs) Forbes had a hundred different statements that they put up about money. The Bible has a lot of things to say about money. The book of James also has had quite a bit to say about money as well. If you remember back in James chapter 1 and verses 9 through 11, he said, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I know on first reading you think, well, why would a rich man be encouraged by that, by the fact that he's going to fade away just like the poor person does? And I'm convinced that the reason that he would take heart from that is the recognition that life is about more than wealth. And if we're going to evaluate people based on how much money they have, that communicates a very shallow purpose in life indeed. It's not that cheap. Well, then he went from there in the book of James chapter 1 into chapter 2. And what did chapter 2 deal with? Showing partiality. He said, look, if you've got somebody that's dressed poorly, dressed in rags and comes into your church, and you treat that person differently than you treat the person that comes in finely dressed and with rings and jewelry and that stuff, then you are totally missing the point. In fact, he goes into later in chapter 2 using that as an example even of their faith, because he says if somebody that's in need, a brother or sister in Christ comes to you and they're in need of being fed and clothed, and you just say, you know what, I'll pray for you, goodbye, and you don't do anything to help them, he says, what good is that? And and he uses that to say, then what good is your faith if that is the kind of response that you have toward people where you will not lift a finger to help in their poverty, but rather just turn them away? And so James, already to this point, has brought up wealth, riches, the lack thereof, in a few different contexts coming up to this point. 
When he gets into chapter 3, he begins to recognize or point out to us that there is a difference between the way the world looks at life and the way we should be looking at life. In chapter 3 and verse 15 and the surrounding area, he talks about a heavenly wisdom compared to an earthly wisdom. He says this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. And so he's recognizing that the world is going to evaluate things in a very different way than the way we should evaluate things. And so the world might hold up wealth and fame as being something to uh, really push for and something that uh, says something a lot about you. Us, not so much. Those things don't measure real high on the chart. He went on in chapter 4 and and verse 4 to say, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. And so the point is, we kind of put it in a nutshell up to this point in the book of James, is that he said, look, money's not going to be something that we measure ourselves by. We're not going to treat people differently because of whether they have money or not. So we're just not going to go there. So what James has left us with is humility. He begins to talk about how God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And it's within that context. Remember last week's discussion, talking about letting God into your business. Saying if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. Always acknowledging God's presence in the making of our plans and the unfolding of our life events and fulfilling His will. Well, it was an application of humility to our planning. Now we're going to apply that same humility to the area of finances and as we think about money, try to get God's perspective on it here this morning. Well, as we do that in this passage, God gives us five lessons about money. Now, they're given in a very negative statements. Obviously, he wouldn't have talked about showing partiality if they weren't having trouble with partiality. He wouldn't have had uh, this issue with the rich and the poor if there weren't rich and poor among them in their congregation. So that's why he's dealing with these issues. And so when he comes up and he has people that are handling money in a very worldly way with that uh, demonic earthly wisdom rather than with using the heavenly wisdom, he's denouncing that heavily. And so he's pronouncing severe judgment upon them. But within that judgment, we can gain lessons that we can learn for ourselves. And maybe some of those lessons will have the same harshness if we're looking at it wrong or we need to adjust the way we use money or think of money. Maybe we'll recognize that in judgment. Maybe also we can just learn from their poor example. Well, at either rate, we get five lessons from it as we look at it here this morning. And the first lesson we get is that we need to take it seriously. Notice where the passage begins. As we pointed out last week, the passage last week began the same way. He says, come now. And we recognize that that's a phrase that he's using to uh, to wake-up call. He's trying to get their attention. He's saying, look, listen up. Pay attention. Wake up. He's treating it seriously right as he comes in to the conversation, and we need to treat it seriously as well. In fact, what he says after that is even more shocking. He says, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Weep and howl. It was a loud wail, a loud cry. This is not somebody that's shoulders are just kind of shaking. right? This is somebody that is letting it out, that has a tremendous uh, sorrow, so much so that they don't really care what people around them are hearing. That's what he's encouraging them to do. He says, you rich, as he identifies them here, which would obviously be the wicked rich, because there's nothing really wrong with riches in themselves. 
You can even look back through Scripture and find that there's many people that God used and blessed that, that had riches. Abraham was a very wealthy man. Um, even in the New Testament, guys like Barnabas, Joseph of Arimathea, these are wealthy people. But these, they're not taking it seriously. And he's a, a calling upon them in judgment. And he's saying, look, you, you should be weeping. You should be wailing. You should be moaning. We learned just a couple weeks ago that God has... Uh, happiness for us that sometimes is only on the other side of some tears. If you look back at James chapter 4, verse 9, he said, Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And when we studied that passage, we recognized that if we're not acting right, if we're not treating other people right, if we're not walking in line with the will of God, then happiness is really not a good place for us. Because it means we're just going along life without thinking. Going along life without evaluating our life according to the purposes that God has for it. And he's saying, look, actually, you, you should stop laughing and you should be crying right now. Now, but we also acknowledge that the reason he wants them crying right now is so that it will result in the grace that God was offering to them. It will result in the ultimate joy and happiness that they can gain by being inside the will of God. One commentator in dealing with this first verse of James chapter 5 says he's calling upon them to howl and to weep and to mourn. Why? Because there's coming a time where nothing else can be done about it, but you will just be howling and weeping and mourning forever. He says, you know what? It's better to weep now while you can be handed a kerchief than to weep later when nothing can be done about it. We need to take it seriously. I think of the story that Jesus told about Lazarus and the rich man. Jesus said there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen. Now, purple spoke of tremendous wealth because it's a spendy dye. And so not just anybody wore purple. But this rich man wore purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades. Just one of the other words for hell. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And so you find an example of what James is talking about here given by his half-brother Jesus. And the point is, the rich man should have had a time in his life where he realized and he drove him to tears. Why? Because in driving him to tears, he could have repented and he could have changed and he could have ended up somewhere else forever. But today, that rich man is still weeping and wailing in hell over 2,000 years later. And Lazarus is still comforted in heaven having experienced the same 2,000 years. If that doesn't get us to take it seriously... What will? That's what James tells him. He points to that judgment. In fact, he's even going to go on to say that your things are rotted, your possessions are rotted, and they will testify against you on that judgment day. 
Money is an incredibly important thing in our life. It can lead to our condemnation. It can also be used for very wonderful things in providing for families, helping out people, providing for ministries, all kinds of different things that can be accomplished with it. Well, a little bit later, we also see the importance of it in chapter 5 and verse 6 when he says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, I'm not sure exactly. He doesn't give any specifics for us to know exactly what he's talking about. Is You kind of wondered, is, is, murdered, is it literally murder? Is he speaking hyperbole a little bit like he did before? Remember when he talked about wars and, and battles? Or is there actually the, the, the language here talking about condemned? You have condemned and murdered points toward court settings. So, you know, and that's one of, the, one of the settings that wealthy are often able to take advantage of is knowing how to work systems and make systems work for them. And so it could be that they're going and taking these people into court and through the court process even, which is supposed to provide justice, the poor person is finding a lack of justice and the rich person is manipulating it. And so it could be that that's actually happened and maybe it's even resulted in somebody's death. I don't, I don't know for sure. So it's hard to know if he's using a little bit of exaggeration to make his point or if there were actually people, right, even in that congregation that had died because of mistreatment financially or in one way or another. It's hard to tell. But the point is, in either rate, he's saying, look, you're destroying lives. You're taking advantage of a system and you're destroying other people, which points us to the seriousness of money. Money's not something just to be taken lightly. It is something that we ought to be very serious about indeed. In fact, in 1 Timothy, in chapter 6, it says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means for gain. And so as the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy here, he just starts with the doctrine of Christ. And he says, look, some, some people are going to be outside of that doctrine of Christ. And what is the last thing that he refers to here? He says they're going to see their Christianity, their spirituality, as a means of accomplishing gain, of gaining gain, getting financial increase which is far from the case. He goes on to say, but godliness with contentment, I love his word play here, godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You see, in this passage that deals largely with money that is very closely connected to the doctrine of Christ itself, and he says the love of money, not just money itself, but the love of money leads to all kinds of evil. For money, people will sell drugs to other people. For money, people will sell sex to other people. People will lie for money. They will cheat for money. They will, they will steal for money. They will even kill for money. Every kind of evil that you can think of, the love of money will accomplish that thing. And so it needs to be taken seriously. Well, not only that, but our second lesson is we need to view it spiritually. View it spiritually. 
In verses 2 and the first part of verse 3, he says, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. So he, he talks about a couple of consuming things. Right, the moths that are going to consume. There's that corrosion, rust, if you think of it, uh, that eats things slowly. And then he mentions lastly, fire. Fire consumes things quickly. But all these things together are shown as being corrosive within their lives. Now, what is he doing here? He's he's making a spiritual point. It's very much like we've talked about how James looks a lot like the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave. But in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus would say, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moths nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Money is so much more than just money. What you treasure, what you value in life, is where you will spend your money. That means that wherever your money is, that's where your heart is. Don't lay up yourselves treasures here. Why? Because that means your heart is here. Lay up your treasures in heaven. Why? Because that means your heart is there. Your heart is focused on God. And then this, this next part that he goes into in this, in this passage, he says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body is full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? And then he's going to go right back to talking about money. You say, no, wait a minute. Why, why this little passage about the light and, the, and your eyes, money before it, money after it? Why? Why is it focused on light? Because he's saying, how are you viewing it? How are you looking at life? How are you looking at God? How are you looking at money? If through money your heart gets led astray and you are missing the light of God and you're stuck in that worldly darkness, then how great is that darkness? But rather, as he goes on, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You see, how we handle money and our perspective on money is a hugely spiritual issue. I know it's a carnal thing that we're out spending in the world and it's just a daily business and that's how life works. But it, you know what? Every part of our life is a spiritual endeavor. And that's what he's saying is our perspective on money shows us to be either operating inside the light of God or inside the darkness of the world. You know, in Revelation chapter 2, and we don't really have time to read all these. I wish we did. Letters to seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Out of seven churches, five churches get judged by God. Only two get only commended by God. The other ones, there's usually a mix. He'll commend them about some things, pronounce judgment about other things. One of the churches, the church of Smyrna, they're one of the ones that didn't get anything wrong pointed out about them. In that passage, it describes them, it says, you are very poor, and then it puts in parentheses, but you are rich. But then you go on into the next chapter, into chapter 3, and you find this church of Laodicea. Most people know the church of Laodicea because that's the lukewarm church. God says, I wish you were hot or cold. I feel like spitting you out of my mouth because you're just lukewarm. But you know what? Right after that, God says, why are you lukewarm? You know why you're lukewarm? Because you think you're rich. 
And they were a wealthy congregation. He said, you think you're rich. But he says, you know what? You are miserable, blind. That area sold a special salve for eyes to help eyesight. They also dealt with fine linens and stuff like that. And so every one of these would be very personal to them. But God says, you know what? You are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You think you're rich, but you're poor. To the other one, he says, you are poor, but you're very rich. We need to see this as a spiritual conversation. We're not rich when we're rich by the the world's terms. We're rich when we're rich according to God's terms. It's not your bank account that's going to show your wealth or the stock market that's going to show your wealth. You know what's going to show your wealth? Your relationship to God and your ability to reach out to others. That's what's going to show your wealth. We need to view it spiritually. We also need to use it generously. Part of His condemnation for them in in, uh, the latter part of verse 3 is you have laid up treasure in the last days. Literally means you have hoarded it. You're hoarding it for yourself. Last week we read about that guy that said, I'm going to build barns to store all my stuff so that I have uh, all the stuff that I could ever use so I can just tell myself to enjoy life for a long time. And God says, you fool, today your life will be taken from you. Then who's going to get all that stuff in your barn that you just put in there? We're not meant to hoard things. We're not meant to just stock it up. Now, there's, there's some responsibility, definitely, that the Bible teaches us about laying aside to make sure that you're providing for your life as you go on into the latter part of your life. Even, even talks in a positive way about leaving an inheritance to your children. But you know what? Life is not just about stockpiling and storing stuff. There's a reasonable amount that you need. And I'm not going to tell you what that is. It's not my place or my business. But there's a reasonable amount that we need to support ourselves through things. And then, and then we got this extra we can, others that we can use and sacrificially even so to use to help and to take care of other people and to provide for, for missions and ministry and the spread of the gospel and other things. And these people were, some of them were just hoarding it. But other people around them that needed it. You know, you go out and you earn your money, and you should. But part of the reason we earn it is to give it away. In Ephesians chapter 4, it's talking about how we need to put off the old man that we were before becoming a Christian, put on the new man, which is in Christ. And then as he goes on to describe that, he gives several specific examples. And in chapter 4, verse 28, he says, Let the thief no longer steal. What is a thief? A thief that says, I'm going to take what you have so that I can enjoy it. He says, let the thief stop stealing. Put that off. Don't do it anymore. He says, but what what are you supposed to replace that on? If you take that off, what do you put on instead? He says, but rather let him labor. Let him work. Doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In other words, don't take from others so that you can give it to yourself. Go out and earn something so that you can not only provide for yourself, but give to somebody else so that you can help other people. That's baked right into who we are as Christians. As Christians, we have to be people that work hard and not only to provide for ourselves and our family, but also to contribute to other people, to help other people along the path. It is a great tool in the right hands. In Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 2 states the principle that they just came together and had everything common. Acts chapter 4 reiterates that statement and then give some specific examples of Barnabas and others that sold their land to help everybody get along at that time. So we need to use it generously. Also, we need to earn it with integrity. 
in verse 4, it says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. In other words, these people are making a lot of money and cheating the people that are working for them. They're not paying their labors. I remember when I worked in construction back in Washington, the guy that I worked for told me about another builder that a big part of the way he made his money is by hiring lots of little companies to come in and work on big projects, and then he wouldn't pay them until they were off into bankruptcy. And he made more money on putting other companies out of business than he did in other endeavors. And I thought, what a horrible individual. How do you sleep with yourself at night? By having people build for you and then not not paying them. But you know what? I remember I remember when we were in Otana, I was going to Bible college and I was new there and I was working for Ted Weinberg and, and we were working on somebody's house doing an addition on their house and it was a, a Christian. In fact, it was another guy in our church. And he was telling me his stories. He said, you know, he knew I was there studying to be a pastor and stuff, so we were talking about that a little bit. And he says, you know, he said there was a pastor in the community that I grew up in, and he said that pastor, he said he had a, it really damaged his ministry. He said, you know what damaged his ministry more than anything else? I said, what? He said he didn't even pay his bills. He didn't pay his bills. That just really tore down his ministry. It, it hurt the spread of the gospel in that town and everything else. And I thought, wow. That's always stuck in my mind, him telling me about that and the damage that came from that. But you know what? I remember several years later, Weinberg and I were talking and Ted said, you know what? He said, sad thing is, he said, a lot of times the Christians are worse than the world. He says, in fact, when I look back at who's paid me and who hasn't paid me, just about every time I've not been paid, it's by a Christian. And he said, most of the time they're right from my own church. I said, from our own church? Are you kidding me? Who? You know, the first name that came up was that same guy telling me about that pastor that never paid his bills. I said, you've got to be kidding me. It can't be him. You're not serious. He said, absolutely. That's who. But you know what? The point is, we need to work with integrity. These people were not paying the people that worked for them. Whether you're an employer or an employee, you need to work with integrity. I remember working at Arby's. There was a girl that would come in. She would go punch her time card as soon as she got there, and then she'd roam around, talk, go in, change into her uniform, do these different things. Punching out was the same way. You were supposed to go punch out and then you're free to change and leave whenever you want. She'd go back in and change, come out and sit there and chat with people for 15 minutes or so and then punch her time card and, and leave. And it's horrible. You see, we're supposed to, with money, we're supposed to earn it with integrity. There's a lot of people out there that do a lot of crooked stuff and a lot of horrible things for the almighty dollar and we need to not be one of them. Plato said this, No wealth can ever make a bad man at peace with himself. If you uh, earn money or take money in corrupt ways, you pay more than you make. And then lastly, live on it modestly. He condemns them in chapter 5 and verse 5. He says, You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of the slaughter. Fattened is kind of that idea of the fatted calf. They'd take a calf and set it aside from the others and feed it a whole bunch of grain and stuff. Kind of fatten it up for the barbecue that's coming because we're going to celebrate something down the road here. And he says, you know what? That's what we do to ourselves when we treat money in an immodest way. When we're just heaping, when we take all of our money and just heap luxuries upon ourselves and live in, live in the lap of luxury, he says, you're just fattening yourself for the day of judgment. You're, uh, which obviously is not what they would want to be doing if they realize that that was a choice that they're making. He says, but you're just heaping up more and more judgment upon yourself and so that as the day of judgment gets there, you are fat and ready to be judged. You know what we're supposed to be? 
We're supposed to be like Proverbs 30 says. Proverbs 30, verses 7 through 9, I think put it in the most succinct way. It says, Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. You see this very wise man, the wisest, in the writing of the Proverbs. He says, What I want is pretty much just what I need. Because God, if you give me too much, I'll see my wealth and I'll forget about you. I'll stop recognizing my need for you. He says, but if I have too little, if I have too little, I may be tempted to steal and dishonor your name in order to be able to eat. So he says, really where I want to be is I want to be right in the middle. I want to be depending upon God for my daily provisions. I don't want to have so much that I forget God. I don't want to have so little that I'm tempted to do horrible things. I just want to be modest. You know, that's that's the position that the Christian should be at. That's where we should see money is exercised within that modesty.